Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Patty. This week we kick off Season 11 with the introduction of a new companion and a trip to the past in The Time Warrior. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now, Paddy, why don't you kick us off for season 11 with your lovely story recap. Before I begin that, I feel like we should make another public safety announcement. Please do not listen to this podcast while you are cycling. No, no, you can. As our... no, okay, no. no. Let, let's, 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 okay. Let's, let's not alter everyone's lives just because of Paul, right? You can yeah. listen to yes. the podcast while, while cycling. But please just be aware of your surroundings when listening to podcasts at all times. Not just ours, but everybody's. Yes. And I hope you're okay, Paul. Yes. <laughs> okay, on with the on with the recap. Part one. In a medieval castle, the warlord Irongron and his subordinate Bloodaxe are eating in the Great Hall. Irongron is dissatisfied with the quality of the food, and Bloodaxe informs him that their stockpiles are low and they need to replenish, and suggests raiding the storehouses of the local lord, Sir Edward. Bloodaxe then spots a star falling into the forest where it glows brightly, and Irongron rouses the rest of his men so that he can go claim it. Bloodax and the others are reluctant to go into the forest at night due to their superstitious nature, and Irogron reluctantly agrees to wait until morning. They arrive to the landing site and discover it to be a pod-shaped spaceship. An armoured figure emerges from it and disarms Irongron with an electronic baton before telling them that he intends them no harm. He introduces himself as Lynx, an officer of the Suntaran Empire, and then claims the planet in the name of the Empire. He is then taken back to Irongron's castle under guard, and he asks for their aid in repairing his ship, which he warns Irongron against tampering with, lest it explode. When Irongron threatens to kill him, Lynx offers to give him weapons that would allow him to take over the entire country. Irongron agrees to give him access to his forge and armory, but Lynx says that he will need to acquire advanced technology in order to fix the drive mechanism. In the present day, the Brigadier is showing the Doctor to his temporary accommodation at a secret research facility. He reveals that several top scientists, as well as millions of pounds worth of equipment, have been mysteriously vanishing. As a result, he has decided to sequester the remaining leading scientists at the facility until the causes of the disappearances have been discovered. Unbeknownst to them, the scientists and the equipment are currently in the possession of Lynx, who has set them up in the armory of Irongron's castle where they are working on his ship. As part of their tentative alliance, Lynx has supplied Irongron and his men with rifles to use in their upcoming raids and to keep them from interfering in his work. Meanwhile, the Doctor is greeted by another scientist, Professor Joseph Rubish, who gives out about the Brigadier's security arrangements, and the irony is not lost on the Doctor as he defends the Brigadier's actions. They are then joined by a young woman, who Rubish introduces as Lavinia Smith, whom the Doctor recognises as the name belonging to an eminent virologist. However, he confides in her that she appears to be too young for the work that she had previously written, and the woman reveals that her name is Sarah Jane Smith, and she is Lavinia's niece. She reveals that she is a journalist, and took the place of her aunt to investigate the story behind the disappearances. She asks the doctor not to out her, but she grows angry when he says that she can make herself useful by making the coffee. He then retrieves the TARDIS, which is currently in the corner and being used by Rubish as a blackboard. At the castle of Sir Edward, the elderly lord and his wife Eleanor are discussing what to do about Irongron. Eleanor laments the fact that Irongron and his men do as they please unopposed, but Edward reveals that he doesn't currently have the manpower to take him on. However, he has written to the surrounding nobles in order to combine their forces against the warlord. Unfortunately, 
Edward's messenger is captured and brought to Iron's Grand's castle, where he refuses to divulge the content of the letter to the illiterate warlord and his men. The messenger is sent to the cells and later Lynx is summoned to help interrogate him. Lynx is invigorated when Iron Grand mentions his suspicions of a battle to come, revealing that the Sontaran Empire thrives on war. The messenger is brought back and he uses his electronic baton to hypnotise him, which makes him reveal Sir Edward's plan. Lynx goes to leave and is stopped by Arangran, but again he uses his baton to disarm the warlord, who swears to make him pay once their alliance comes to an end. Back in the present day, Rubish informs the doctor that he has also figured out Sarah Jane's secret and voices his suspicions of her being a spy. However, he stops when she returns and goes to his sleeping cubicle, leaving her and the doctor alone. They continue to share their slightly antagonistic relationship when she questions him about a device he is working on and he gives an evasive answer. She bids him goodnight and goes to her own cubicle. Rubish emerges and suggests telling the brigadier, but the doctor says that it can wait until morning. Later, the device the doctor built starts to activate and Sarah Jane comes out when she hears it. They hear a sound come from Rubish's cubicle and find it empty when they look inside, with the doctor revealing that he was only there a few moments beforehand. The doctor takes a scanner and goes to check the landing, and the scanner reveals a holographic version of Lynx, which a startled guard shoots at. The brigadier arrives and the doctor reveals Rubish's disappearance. He says he has gotten a fix on the person who took him, and reveals that they are using a matter transmitter to transport items through time and space. He says he intends to go into the TARDIS to find the source of the signal, and the brigadier cautions him, reminding him of his adventure to Metabelis Tree. Unbeknownst to them both, Sarah Jane has also entered the TARDIS, thinking that Rubish wandered in there. Once the TARDIS lands, she emerges a short while after the Doctor and is amazed to see that it is still a police box despite the difference in its internal structure. She takes a look around the surrounding area and comes across a man preparing to fire an arrow at Irongrant as he walks his castle's battlements. Her distraction causes him to miss and Bloodaxe calls out to the guards who immediately capture Sarah Jane who mistakenly believes that they are part of some renaissance fair. Her abduction is noticed by the Doctor and he follows after her as she struggles against the guards bringing her into the castle. He takes cover behind a wagon when he hears someone coming and he spots Lynx emerge from the armory. He watches in surprise as the Sontaran, thinking he is unobserved, takes off his helmet to reveal a brown, bulbous necklace head. Part 2 Lynx puts back on his helmet when he hears footsteps approaching and the Doctor is forced to hide when the guards bring in the would-be assassin who is known as Hal the Archer. Meanwhile, Bloodaxe brings Sarah Jane to Irongran and demands to be let go, still thinking the entire thing is part of a pageant. Hal is brought in and under threat of death reveals that it was Lady Eleanor who sent him. Hal is then sent to the dungeon and Sarah Jane interrupts Irongran and Bloodaxe's planning of their assault on Sir Edward's castle, demanding to know where she is. They think she is crazy as she tries to work out exactly what is going on, finally deciding that it is a tourist reenactment site of some type. Irongran tells her to shut up as her continued talking annoys him, but they are interrupted by the arrival of Lynx, who has come to show Irongran a weapon he has designed. Lynx notices Sarah Jane and is confused by the fact that she seems to be different to Irogron, but realises that she is female. He notices her clothes and then hypnotises her so that she can reveal when and where she came from. He grows alarmed at the idea of the Doctor's ability to travel in time, but Irogron interrupts his musings and demands to know more about the weapon Lynx has brought him. Lynx takes out a remote control and summons a mobile suit of armour. Irogron is amazed at the creation and asks for more to be built. Lynx agrees with a sheer amusement at the destruction they will cause, but then notices that Sarah Jane has gone missing. Irongrand tells him not to worry, as his men will capture her, and he demands a full demonstration of the robotic warrior's capabilities. 
The Doctor encounters Sarah Jane in the corridors, but she runs from him. Before he can go after her, he is forced to take cover as Hal is carried outside for execution. However, the execution is stopped by Irongron, who has decided to test the robot by making it fight Hal. Despite Bloodaxe's worries that Hal's arrows will easily pierce the armour at such close range, he and the other men begin to laugh as Hal panics as he struggles to stop the robot. The Doctor observes this, and just as the robot is about to kill Hal, he takes a nearby crossbow and shoots the remote control from Irongron's hand. The robot begins to swing its blade wildly in Irongron's direction, and Hal uses the distraction as a chance to slip away. Sarah Jane spots him and calls him into a doorway she is hiding in, and together they flee from the castle. Irongron is forced to behead the robot, which finally causes it to fall to the ground, where it continues to trash around dangerously. He goes to the armory and is shocked when he sees Lynx's uncovered face after he bursts in. He tells him about the robot, and Lynx says that he will build him one more that responds to voice commands, and goes with Irongron to deactivate the other robot. Unbeknownst to them, their conversation is being monitored by the Doctor through a grate near the ceiling. After they have gone, he pulls open the grating and goes into the armory and is amazed at the sight of the missing scientists working like mindless automatons. He encounters Rubish, who seems to be free of Lynx's control due to the fact that he left his glasses behind in the present and is nearly blind without them. He tells Rubish where they are and says that they need to leave, but the scientist is intrigued by the idea of having travelled in time as well as the work that Lynx is doing. The Doctor tries in vain to get him to go with him, but Lynx returns and apprehends the Doctor. Meanwhile, Hal has taken Sarah Jane back to Sir Edward's castle and reveals what he has observed in Iron Grand's castle. However, Sarah Jane mistakenly voices her opinion that the Doctor is the one who is helping Iron Grand, explaining the abduction of the scientists to Iron Grand's castle. She urges him to do something to deal with the Doctor, and Sir Edward, impressed by her determination as well as Hal's own assessment of her bravery, asks what she has in mind. She suggests a commando raid against the castle to kidnap the Doctor, and Hal goes to organise the men for it. Back at the armory, the Doctor wakes up after having been knocked out by Lynx's baton and recognises him as a Santaran. He asks if their age-old war with the Rutans has now spread to Earth, and Lynx says he was forced to make an emergency landing after being attacked by a Rutan fighter squadron. The Doctor reveals that he is a Time Lord and warns Lynx not to be so dismissive of him or his people after Lynx voices the Santaran opinion of the Doctor's people. He then offers to help Lynx fix his ship if he frees the scientists and sends them back to their own time. Lynx refuses, not caring over the fact that he is potentially altering human history, and orders the Doctor to put on a controlled headset, which shocks the Doctor when his concentration deviates from the questions it poses. Lynx leaves, and the Doctor tries several times to take off the headset, but is shocked each time he does so. Outside, Sarah Jane and Hal lead the raid on the castle. Hal suggests that she waits behind, but she reminds him that she is the only one who knows what the Doctor looks like. They pass by the Great Hall, where they see Lynx give Irongron another batch of rifles, and overhear the Warlord order preparations for an attack on Sir Edward's castle the following day. In the armory, Rubish returns, and the Doctor guides him to the control panel for the headset and sets him free. He prepares to leave, but when Rubish calls him by his alias of John Smith, he remembers Sarah Jane and goes to look for her. He encounters Bloodaxe and some guards in the hallway and flees outside, where he does his best to avoid the rest of the men, but falls to the ground and watches as Iron Grand prepares to kill him. Part 3 Hal, who is on the battlements with Sarah Jane, manages to disarm Iron Grand with a well-placed shot, and the Doctor rushes towards them. He blocks off his pursuit by lighting a pile of straw on fire, and he thanks Sarah Jane and Hal for their rescue. However, she tells the others to apprehend him, and they make their way back to Sir Edward's castle. Lynx returns to the armory to find the Doctor gone and leaves again to find him, unaware that he is being watched by Rubish. After he leaves, 
Rubish goes back to work on fashioning a monocle for himself so he can see better. Lynx goes to the Great Hall where Arangron vows revenge against the Doctor. Lynx demands a search party to be sent out for the missing Doctor, but Arangron, thinking Lynx's description of him as a mere slave, refuses to listen. Bloodaxe realises who the Doctor is as he overheard Sarah Jane calling to him and informs Arangron that he and Lynx are looking for the same man. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane's party arrives back at Sir Edward's castle and she begins to question the Doctor about his allegiance with Arangron. The Doctor clears up the confusion by informing her about Lynx. She is sceptical over his claims that Lynx is an alien, but is intrigued when he reveals his association with Unit and his help in investigating the disappearances of the scientists. Sir Edward and Lady Eleanor arrive and are taken aback by his charming demeanour. Sarah Jane admits that she may have been wrong about him, but they all remain sceptical as they think he could just be trying to save himself. Hal informs Sir Edward that Arangorn will attack in the morning, and the Doctor says that he will help defend the castle. He gives instructions for Lady Eleanor to organise the serving women to make mannequins, whilst he works on mixing various compounds together. Sarah Jane joins him, and despite being annoyed at his slightly patronising attitude, she seems intrigued by him and the TARDIS. She asks why he doesn't just leave, and he says he needs to stay to stop Lynx from changing humanity's history, revealing his own nature as a Time Lord. She's amazed by this, but before they can talk further, they hear battle horns from Iron Grand's party. At the castle walls, Arangron and Bloodaxe are amazed to see the walls fully manned. At the castle walls, Arangron and Bloodaxe are amazed to see the walls fully manned. Arangron prepares to call for a retreat, but Lynx, wanting to see how war on Earth is fought, insists that he attack using the rifles he gave them. When Arangron and his men miss, Lynx takes a rifle to show him how it is done and he hits one of the figures on the wall, revealing it to be a mannequin. Realising that he actually does have the advantage in numbers after all, Arangron orders his men to set up the ladders to climb the walls. As they attack, the Doctor and Sarah Jane start throwing bags of the mixtures he was creating, which turn out to be rudimentary smoke and stink bombs. The attack is driven off and Arangron orders a return to his castle where he berates his own men. Bloodaxe tries to intercede on their behalf, but Arangron tells him to leave and prepare for another attack tomorrow. Lynx comments that Arangron led the retreat and he says that humans are weak. Arangron grows frustrated and attacks him, but the Santaran easily beats him and says that he will soon be finished with his work and he can leave. After he's gone, Arangron rants and swears to kill Lynx and Bloodaxe asks why he didn't do it already. Sensing doubt from his subordinate, Arangron says that he needs to keep Lynx alive so that he can get everything from him that he can and then he will kill him. At Sir Edward's castle, the Doctor and the others are having a celebratory dinner, but he warns them that Arangron will attack again and won't fall for the same trick twice. Instead, he suggests that they capture Arangron's castle and asks Lady Eleanor to find ingredients to help brew a sleeping potion. Later, he and Sarah Jane, disguised as monks seeking donations, gain admittance to the castle and make their way into the armory. Inside, they encounter Rubish, who says that Lynx has been working the enslaved scientists nearly to death. Sarah Jane says they need to get them food, but the doctor says that Lynx has nearly finished repairing his spaceship. He says that they need to stop it because when it takes off, it will destroy the entire castle. In the Great Hall, Lynx delivers another batch of guns to Arangron and says that he will try and finish the new robot before he leaves. When Arangron demands his obedience in exchange for having his men take the finished ship out of the castle, Lynx tells them that he does not need them and again warns them about trying to stop him. In the armory, the Doctor uses a penlight to try and break the control of the scientists through a sequence of flashes, but he, Sarah Jane and Rubish are forced to hide when Lynx returns. Lynx tries to force some of the fatigued scientists back to their feet, but the Doctor stops him. He offers to help Lynx repair his ship in exchange he allows the Doctor to send the scientists back to their own time. 
He also asks that he help capture Irongrun and his men so they can be taken out of the castle when it and the weapons are destroyed as a result of the ship taking off. In reply, Lynx shoots him with his baton. Part 4 Sarah Jane rushes out and struggles with Lynx for control of the baton, and the Doctor collapses. The Doctor weakly tells Lynx that the scientists are on the point of exhaustion, but the Santaran says that he doesn't care so long as they finish their work and allow him to rejoin the war against the Rutans. He voices his derision over the Doctor's weak nature, but as he is talking, the Doctor notices a rubbish sneaking up on Lynx. The Doctor then says that all species have a weakness, mentioning that Santarans can be stunned by a blow to the probic vent at the base of their necks. Rubish catches on and hit, hits Lynx with a piece of, of staff, causing him to fall to the ground in pain. Sarah Jane goes to check on the doctor and he thanks her for saving him. He then says they need to carry out their plan and Sarah Jane leaves to carry out her part whilst Rubish and the doctor tie up Lynx. Just as they finish tying him up, Bloodaxe arrives to bring him to Irongron. The doctor impersonates Lynx and tells him to leave, but Bloodaxe says that if he doesn't come soon, they will come back and drag him to Irongron. The Doctor then instructs Rubish on how to break the control over the scientists, whilst he tries to come up with a way to distract Irongron. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane makes her way to the kitchen and starts to unpack the drug food, but she is caught by one of Irongron's servants. She initially tries to pass herself off as a noble, but the servant sees through her disguise and instead says that she is starving and just wants food. The servant agrees to feed her, but she would have to work for it. In the Great Hall, Irongron and the rest of his men watch as the robot enters. Unbeknownst to them, it is actually the Doctor wearing the full suit of armour that housed the robot. Grant demands to know where Lynx is, and the Doctor says that he is still in the armoury, making more robots. He tries to leave, but Grant, curious as to his combat skills, challenges him to a fight. Despite the Doctor's repeated attempts to avoid the fight, Grant attacks him and the two engage in a sword fight. They are evenly matched, and Grant tells Bloodaxe to join so they can test him further. His pride wounded at the Doctor's continual display of superior skill, Irongron orders his men to shoot their crossbows at him in an effort to limit his skill. The Doctor reveals his true nature, and Irongron orders him to be captured. Irongron prepares to kill him, but then decides that since he thinks the Doctor to be a sorcerer, he will kill him with sorcery. Meanwhile, in the kitchen, Sarah Jane is working on the stew and finds out what food is to be served to Irongron and his men. She then voices her annoyance that only the women in the castle do any of their work, but her feminist ideologies are ignored by the servant and the others. After the servant leaves, Sarah Jane surreptitiously drugs the food. In the armory, Rubish manages to bring around the last of the scientists and explains the situation to them. He tells them that they will need to keep up the pretense and they hurry back to their tasks when they hear Iron Gran approaching. The warlord finds Lynx tied up and frees him and tells him that he intends to kill the doctor by having his men use him as target practice for their rifle skills. The Doctor repeatedly manages to dodge the incoming bullets, much to the amusement of Irongron and Bloodaxe. Suddenly, Sarah Jane, having slipped out of the kitchen when she heard the gunfire, appears in the gallery above the hall and pushes one of the chandeliers towards the Doctor. He grabs hold of it and its swinging momentum carries him across the room and out the doorway, which he then bars shut. He then reunites with Sarah Jane and they flee from the castle, knocking out the guards as they do so. Back at Sir Edward's castle, the Doctor says that he will give some time for the sleeping potion to take effect before returning. Sarah Jane tries to dissuade him, but he says he needs to rescue the scientists so that they aren't killed when Lynx's ships takes off. Sarah Jane and Hal offer to go back with him, and he thanks them for their assistance. Later, they make their way to Arnsgrand's castle, but they stop at the TARDIS first, where the Doctor collects a circular metal folding fan. 
They arrive at the castle to find the guards asleep from the effects of the drug food. They make their way to the armory where Rubish tells him that Lynx has finished repairing his ship and it is currently powering up. The doctor tells Hal to scout the castle to make sure Irongron and the rest of his men are asleep so they can be disarmed. The doctor then goes to the ship to find the device that he can send the scientists back to their own time and once he has it he begins sending them back. Lynx arrive and the doctor hands the device to Rubish so he can take over. Lynx tries to use his baton on him but the folding fan deflects the beam. Lynx charges at the doctor and they manage to disarm each other before engaging in hand-to-hand combat. The Sontarian's superior strength proves to be too much for the doctor and he throws him to the ground. He picks up his baton and prepares to kill the doctor but is interrupted by the appearance of Irongron who has managed to resist the sleeping potion. He tries to attack Lynx but Lynx kills him instead. He then goes into his ship to prepare for takeoff. Meanwhile, Hal rouses the blood axe and tells him to get his men out of the castle before racing back to the armory. He arrives back just as the ship's door begins to close and he shoots an arrow into Lynx's probic bent. The dying Sontaran manages to activate the takeoff switch and the doctor rushes Sarah Jane, who helped get the rest of the scientists home, and Hal out of the castle. They manage to get out of it moments before it explodes. Hal escorts them back to the TARDIS and thanks them for their help praising the Doctor for his magical prowess. The Doctor tells him that he is not a magician before entering the TARDIS with Sarah Jane, and the Archer watches in amazement as it vanishes from sight. End of the story. So, first story of season 11 down, so we're now going to go to the trivia spot. What do you got for us this week, Trish? So, the air date for the Time Warrior, the first story of season 11, is the 15th of December 1973 to the 5th of January 1974. The writer of this story is Robert Holmes. Hello again, Bob. How are you doing? Hi, Bob. (laughs) This is story 6 of 18 for Bob Holmes. We previously saw his work in The Crotons, Space Pirates, Spearhead from Space, Terror of the Autons, and Carnival of Monsters. The director of the story is Alan Bromley. This is the first of two directing credits for Alan. We'll see his work again in The Nightmare of Eden. Alan passed away back in 1995. Now, the working titles for the story included The Fugitive, The Time Fugitive, and The Time Survivor. I think Time Fugitive and Time Survivor present two very different stories. (laughs) They they really do. And given Lynx's portrayal, I think Time Warrior is is obviously the better, more apt. Yeah, uh, it's it's a more appropriate description. It is. So the whole, um, how do I put it? The setting for this story, the idea of a medieval castle setting, mm-hmm. that was actually a writing story task that was given to Bob Holmes by Terence Dix. And Holmes was less than enthusiastic about it. He didn't really like historical stories. He thought they were boring. Uh, the words here are twee and whimsical. And they were kind of relics of the show's original educational mission. Now, I personally disagree with you, Bob, but whatever. Yes, absolutely. However, he agreed to Terence's suggestion of a medieval times story, provided he wouldn't have to have historical personages in it, mm-hmm. and that it would include a strong science fiction element, which is where Bob, obviously, where his strengths lie. Yeah. When Bob later became the script editor... And Terence was a writer. Bob kind of flipped it on Terence and gave him a setting of a lighthouse. Go write a fucking story to lighthouse, you little shit. <laughs> you made me write one in a medieval castle. And from what I remember of my initial watch through, 
uh, Terence rules to the occasion. <laughs> Speaking of Bob and Terence, so Bob's only memory of the shoot was apparently that Terence ate kippers with vinegar on the train to the filming location. And that sounds rank. <laughs> that sounds absolutely disgusting. It it, re- it really does. I imagine it would smell. Like, and a confined thing like a fucking train as well. Like, ugh. No, no. Terence, what are you doing? So this is another contribution from Bob and the fact that we have another, you know, key part of Doctor Who lore in the mm-hmm. Suntarans. Okay, so mm-hmm. a new quote-unquote monster that we have. So the idea for the Suntarans came after Bob read a 10-volume treatise on military strategy called On War, which was written by an early 19th century Prussian general. And to offset his... <laughs> So this is a quote from the, the Times Wiki. It's so, it's so funny the way they wrote it. To offset his ennui with the actual business of writing a storyline, <laughs> Bob prepared his submit his story submission in the form of a military communique between right. the Santarans Holmes and Terran Sedex. <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> I just think it's fantastic. Like, Bob Holmes is the guy who I sit down and have a chat with. (laughs) Yeah. He's so good. Yeah. So, one thing you may have noticed is that the credits have once again changed. So, the opening sequence is a bit different. So, Mm -hmm. it has this kind of, like, time tunnel effect and also the diamond-shaped logo. Uh, These will both remain in use until 1980. Paddy got it right in his summary. We are on to parts one two three and four no longer episode one two three and four i mentioned this last week and this will remain the case until the end of the classic series with the exception of destiny of the daleks just on the subject of the time tunnel uh, logo that was mm. actually used in a family guy um parody of star wars where it's like they go into hyperspace and it's just the tom baker version of this this <laughs> intro <laughs> I think most people probably associate it with Tom, but it did actually yeah. start with, with John. Yeah. So, interestingly, the Radio Times program listing for part one mm-hmm. had a black and white uh, illustration uh, by a guy named Peter Brooks, which had Lynx using his gun to shoot an axe from a hand, which is sort of in line with what we see him doing uh, in the show. Mm-hmm. And then it also had the Brigadier... Sarah Jane and the Doctor in front of Iron Grand's castle, which is a bit weird because the Brigadier didn't yeah. go back in time. He's only in episode one. Yeah, just like, part uh, one. Sorry. Yeah, like, and like it's, I like, no. While it would have been cool to see the Brig back in that time period, I think it's, I think just having the Doctor and Sarah Jane be the only two of the unit group to be involved in the adventure is probably the best thing for an, an, a new incoming companion. Yeah, it's just weird that they would put the illustration out as if he was mm. going back in time. Mm. But he didn't. Yeah. It seems a bit misleading. <laughs> um, so uh, the name Irongron came from Denmark. It's a historical name from Denmark. Barry Letts wanted Bob Hoskins to play Irongron. I don't know what Bob Hoskins was doing around 1973. Um, but he wanted Bob Hoskins. He was unavailable but did recommend David Dacre, who would later obviously play the role. This is the first mention of the planet that has now been called Gallifrey. 
So Paddy always refers to it as the planet soon to be called, or not as of yet called Gallifrey. It has now been yep. called Gallifrey, Paddy. You can call it Gallifrey from now on. <laughs> uh, originally, it was referred to as Galfrey, G-A-L-F-R-E-Y, in the scripts. And then the extra L and I came from somewhere. <laughs> uh, I think Gallifrey sounds better than Galfrey, only because it sounds like a girl fight <laughs> if you say it the other way. <laughs> So a couple of things in terms of the timing of this story in the sort of in-universe timeline. So Mm -hmm. we find out in Death of the Doctor, the Sarah Jane Adventures story, that Sarah Jane told Joe she arrived just after Joe's departure from units. This would be fairly close to the Green Death in terms Mm -hmm. of timeline. And also... (laughs) There could have been a way to completely avoid the unit dating controversy because there was a line in the bit where Lynx hypnotizes and interrogates Sarah Jane. There Mm -hmm. was originally a line that had her specify that she came from 1974, which if you jump ahead to another story we'll be doing in a couple of seasons, Periods of Mars, Mm -hmm. where she says she's from 1980, had they gone with the 1974 line Mm. It, it would have undone all the confusion that that <laughs> line later caused. So, a bit short-sighted to not include it, but what's going to do? To be fair, though, if they had included it, who's to say that in Pyramids of Mars, they still would have said that she was from 1980. Well, no, no, I mean, I still think the line in Pyramids of Mars makes sense. Mm. Because, like, you know, she's from 1980-ish, like, yeah. around that general time frame. Mm-hmm. Um. She wasn't from the year 1980, so 1980-ish. It's fine. Also, yeah. she has no clue how long she's been. Like, for, from her perspective, she may be like, well, I've been traveling with you from my perspective for like five years. So, yeah. you know, plus one, carry the two, 1980. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, originally, the script contained a full-scale battle with knights in armor attacking the castle. They didn't have the budget, so they went with smoke bombs instead. Hmm. <laughs> which I just think is like the ultimate Doctor Who budget <laughs> workaround. It's like, it is. we don't have the budget for these great nights. Can we do it with action figures? No, we don't have enough action figures. Can we make orange smoke? Yeah, that we can do. <laughs> okay, let's do that. So, <laughs> Also in the original script, it was the Doctor who killed Lynx by shooting an arrow into the probic vent. Not Hal. Hmm. So... I think when I first watched this story 10 plus years ago, yeah, I would have been surprised if the Doctor had been the one to do it, particularly this Doctor. But after the stories we've seen already, yeah. now this is a Centauran, not an Oberon, so maybe the Doctor has a different, has mm. <laughs> more reticence than killing a Centauran. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so originally it was meant to be the Doctor who's doing it. I have actually, I have comments about that uh, resolution uh, kind of plays into actually the three people involved in that, the Doctor, Hal, and Lynx. Mm. So we can discuss that a small bit more. Also, just when you're on the boat, um, they couldn't afford you know, the big battle. Mm. It reminds you of the end of the Holy Grail, where like apparently they just ran out of budget, so they couldn't shoot the battle scene. They just had the cops show up and arrest <laughs> King Arthur. And that's, so, that's some of the best like, closings ever. It's so good. <laughs> so Barry had originally hoped to direct the serial himself uh, Mm -hmm. but he and Terrence Dix were gearing up for production on Moonbase 3 and so he was busy 
Lynx's appearance, right? Um, yeah. The first sight of a Santaran. Uh, this was a collaboration between the costume designer, James Atchison, and the makeup designer, Sandra Exelby. And they worked from Bob's scripted description of Lynx as a cross between a human and a toad. Apparently, you take a human and a toad and you get a big potato. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I had like really enjoyed the um, the the prosthetic for Lynx because it's it's blended in so seamlessly to his own features like that when his mouth talks and his eyes close it's not like he's wearing an actual mask you know yeah I forgot it's been a while since I've watched this story um mm. I particularly haven't watched it since we started doing the podcast I was trying to hold off on watching yeah episodes where, where we're doing podcasts I forgot how how much his own mouth was part of it like how mm. much freedom he had to actually just speak normally, because you yeah. know sometimes with the full bo- the full face prosthetics, the mouth doesn't really move, and you can kind mm-hmm. of see their own mouth moving behind <laughs> yeah. big, the big one. Um, so I, it's great that it was like the costume designer and makeup designer sort of working together on this. Yeah, no kudos to the guys. I think they really pulled it off for links. Yeah. However, Kevin Lindsay, who was the guy in the suit, found it very difficult to wear. It interfered with his breathing. And at one point, he did collapse under the weight of the mask and the helmet. Now, it was later revealed that Kevin had a heart condition. And when we talk about the Suntaran experiment, we'll be mentioning this in more detail. But um, he suffered a lot to play yeah. Lynx and later to play Star um, in the Suntaran experiment. Lastly, originally, there was an introductory scene for Hal... That featured him flirting with a serving girl named Mary. And he explained that he had accompanied Sir Edward on one of the crusades and helped him home after he fell sick in the Holy Land. Because it's kind of weird that Hal, this like ace archer, mm-hmm. isn't on the crusades. Because you imagine he would be. Um, but this would kind of explain that he did go, mm-hmm. but he brought Sir Edward home. Yeah. Which is why he was in England at the time. Just when you're saying about uh, flirting with a serving girl, now I know that obviously he didn't shoot the sequence, but you know the way that uh, Jeremy was the original um, Boba Fett? Mm -hmm. You know, in the special edition of uh, Return of the Jedi, it has uh, Boba Fett like flirting with the two dancers in Jabba's Palace. I just imagined that, but hell, (laughs) that's what I have in my head now. I think it works. Yeah, I think it works. Just like you were like the cock of the chin and like as he walks off. Oh, you do. <laughs> yeah. So on to our cast. So as mm. Rubish, we have Donald Palmer. This is Donald's only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include Gamble for a Throne, Ransom for a Pretty Girl, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Special Branch, UFO, The Day of the Triffids, Yes Minister, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and Little Britain. Hal is played by the aforementioned Jeremy Bullock. This is the second and final Doctor Who acting appearance for Jeremy. We proved he saw his work in the Space Museum where he played Tor. There were talks about keeping Hal on as a second companion. So it'd be Sarah Jane and Hal. And apparently Barry did approach Jeremy Bullock to inquire about his schedule, but nothing ever came of it. Now, when we talked about the Space Museum, you and I commented on how... Some people had said that Jeremy Bullock had passed away 
and mm-hmm. at the time he hadn't. Sadly, he has, since we recorded that episode, Jeremy passed away in December of 2020. Which is, obviously, look, it's, it's a shame that anyone passes away, but I've, I've often said it to people that Jeremy Bullock is quite possibly the nicest celebrity I've ever met when we met him at the Star Wars convention here in Cork. He was just so nice. <laughs> he was really nice. I think it was actually Jeremy who told us that Hal... There was a talk of Hal being kept on. It, it was because, God love him, he, he, I think he smelt uh, a potential. Oh, he was trying to upsell his second. Yeah, like, second I, I, I think he, like, yeah, like, he was like, oh, like, here's a pigeon for me because you you like were kind of like, you know, squeeing over both like a picture of Boba Fett or a picture of him as Hal the Archer. And he was like, well, why not get both? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do regret my choice because I went with Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. And no, I really wish I'd gone with Hal. Because um, actually, like, completely off topic, but during the, what I would call the convention off-season of 2020 and 2021, um, a number of convention sites were selling, like, um, autographs that they had, like, in their collections mm-hmm. and stuff. And the autographs of Hal the Archer are very rare. Mostly Jeremy was signing Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an idea, this isn't the exact figure, but just to give you an idea, if if an autograph of Jeremy's Boba Fett was 50 euro, literally the same autograph, the same number of words as Hal is 100 Mm -hmm. euro because there's so few of them. Because mm. you, because like if you imagine like on his table, he had like seven different pictures of Boba Fett and one that one picture of Hal the Archer. Um, so I am kind of regretting my choice, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, we live and we learn. Yeah. Um, moving on. <laughs> so I got sidetracked by Jeremy Bullock. Uh, Iron Gron is played by David Dacre, as I mentioned. This is the first of two acting credits for David. We will see him again in Nightmare of Eden. So clearly he was brought back by the director. He also did some voice work for Big Finish. So kept kind of the Doctor Who sphere for a little bit. David's non-who work includes Zed Cars, Boone, Time Bandits, Two People, Ace of High, Dick Turpin, and Crown Prosecutor. And as one of my personal favourite appearances of him was in the show Porridge, the, mm-hmm. the one with Ronnie Barker set in the, the prison. Um, he actually appears in the season finale as like a, a prisoner that nearly stops a uh, godber uh ronnie barker's uh, prison mate from getting out because he says some inappropriate things about uh, ronnie barker's daughter at which point godber like decides to defend her honor because he's secretly going out with her <laughs> and it, like it's a great performance by him there and it's slightly iron gron-esque so <laughs> we'll see how it, go- it goes into our discussion as links, we have, again, as previously mentioned, Kevin Lindsay. This is the first of three Doctor Who stories for Kevin. We will see him again in Plant of the Spiders and, as I mentioned, in the Santaran Experiment. Mm. His non-Who work includes War and Peace, Paul Temple, Coronation Street, Zed Cars, and Crossroads. Now, I'd like to point out that this story came out in 1973-74. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plant of the Spiders is the last story of this season, and the Centauran experiment is the third story of next season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, third story. Kevin passed away in 1975. Oh. So, uh, very 
short tenure on Who, but definitely, uh, I think, a good one. Yes, definitely. And then we're on to the woman herself. So I had to stop myself from writing an essay, basically recounting her entire autobiography, which is currently looking at me from across the table. Um, but <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you know, pace yourself on this one, okay? Um, Sarah Jane Smith is played by Elizabeth Sladen. Now, Liz was from Liverpool. She got into performing arts at a young age. She started with dance before moving to acting. And after finishing grammar school, she attended drama school for two years. She began work at the Liverpool Playhouse Rep Company as an assistant stage manager. And her first appearance was as a corpse, which is a great way to get into acting, as a corpse. Uh, she was scolded uh, for giggling on stage, though, because there was a young actor by the name of Brian Miller who whispered the words respiration nil Aston Villa 2 <laughs> in her ear while he was playing a doctor on stage. Liz would later go on to marry, said Brian Miller. <laughs> and have a lovely daughter named Sadie. Yeah. Apparently Liz was so good at assistant stage manager, she didn't really get many acting roles <laughs> because she was so good at this other job. So she started deliberately fucking up. <laughs> Said they'd give out to her and give her more on stage time than like backstage time, which I think is hilarious. Uh, she eventually moved into weekly rep, touring around England along with Brian, and then moved to Manchester for three years, where her most notable role at that time was playing Desdemona in Othello. She also did parts for Leeds Radio and Granada Television, uh, appearing in 1970 in six episodes of Coronation Street. Hmm. In 1972, she and Brian moved to London, where she did some more work in television. Uh, her first role was as a female terrorist in an episode of Doom Watch, which I now really want to watch. Yeah. Uh, this followed by guest roles in Some Mothers Do Have Them and Zed Cars. I've seen the Some Mothers Do Have Them guest star, all right. Yeah, I've seen bits of the. I've seen because she's done a few Zed Cars. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen clips from one of them. It's a very, it's a very different Liz, <laughs> very different Liz Lane to the one we're used to. It's hugely different. <laughs> So Zed Cars is actually kind of what led Liz to Doctor Who. So after Katie Manning left, Barry Letts was getting increasingly desperate in search of a replacement for her. And he had a friend, Ron Caddock, who was a producer on Zed Cars, who gave Liz this massive enthusiastic recommendation. Now, apparently there was, there's a funny story that's in Liz's book, and also she's told it a number of times, where... She was off doing some work. She came home, went to bed, and the following morning there was like a note by the phone saying like, "Oh, uh, you're expected at an audition today." And apparently Brian's like, "Oh yeah, no, someone called last night, and <laughs> he like forgot to tell her or something." Um, that audition was for Doctor Who. Um, mm-hmm. she didn't know it was for the companion role. She just thought it was for like a bit part, which is kind of what she'd been doing a lot of. And so she was really amazed at like Barry's thoroughness at like interviewing someone for this like bit part <laughs> in a story. Um, and the way it, the story is told by Liz and Barry and other people who were there is that uh, Barry really liked her, mm-hmm. and so brought her to meet John. And so he took her into the uh, rehearsal room, and John was there, and he apparently like had all these buttons on his coat, like very like. 1970s <laughs> and so Barry introduced them and the way Liz described it was 
Barry kind of stood back behind her a little bit and sort of like a thumbs up, being mm-hmm. like, you know, I like her. What do you think? And then he walked in front of her and John walked behind her and went thumbs up. Yeah, I like her too. And apparently that's how <laughs> that's how it was agreed that she would have the role. Liz will go on to appear in 18 stories in her original run on the show, appearing with John Pertwee and Tom Baker. She would return to the main show several times after that, though, while also starring in a one-off spin-off pilot, one made-for-TV movie, and her own CBBC spin-off, The Sarah Jane Adventures. On top of all that, she also did a number of audio stories, both through the BBC, and she had her own Big Finish series as well. Elizabeth passed away on Tuesday, the 19th of April, 2011, from cancer. Um, I suppose that is a very downer note, and I still remember the day that you, you messaged me about that. Mm-hmm. But with the 18 stories that she's done, in, like she's probably one of the longest-serving companions, like next to Fraser Hines. Uh, I think Janet Fielding is another one. And mm. then like, there's obviously the whole thing of or longest serving companions because now you have um with the revival era it's while there's a certain same amount of stories it's less episodes and then obviously there's a number of years on the show so i think it's but no she's definitely like she and fraser hines i think janet fielding are probably the longest serving from the classic era yeah because like liz has this has nearly four seasons i think this what is there one story from season 14 she's not in? Is Deadly Assassin the last story of season 14? Yes. Yeah, so she's in practically four seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, bar one story. Um, which, for any companion from a Doctor Who perspective, is a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long Janet was on. Um, I haven't watched a lot of Janet stuff. Janet was there for around three years, I think, three and a half years. But I think she had a similar amount of stories. So mm. that's where the um, it kind of comes into it. Yeah. Um, um, of course, you then have to include the five doctors, which Liz is also in. So it takes up to 19 stories. And then, of course, she has all of the other plethora of stuff, which we'll get to in time as we're, as we're talking about stuff. Uh, so actually, uh, my apologies, season 14, it's sort of a C, uh, a William Hartnell type thing where the first two stories of season 14, she's in. The rest of it are all, uh, there's Deadly Assassin, which is no companion. And then there's Louise Jameson comes in in the face of evil, which is halfway through that season. Okay, so she's, so, in, she's in three and a half. Okay. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know why I thought that season 14 was... It's the it's the same kind of thing with the William Hartnell thing because like you know the smugglers and Ten Planet are technically season four, yeah. But you kind of it's like oh no that's the end of the Hartnell era now it's the start of the Troughton era which you would think would be a brand new season but no yeah yeah no um but yeah and actually at the time we're recording this we're recording this on the second of February and mm-hmm. it was Liz Layton's birthday yesterday which yes. was very serendipitous because I watched the Time Warrior yesterday and I sat down to watch it going oh. It's Liz Layden's birthday, and now we're starting watching her stories. So I was very excited. Yes. Um, also, you mentioned that Jeremy Bullock is one of the nicest like actors you've met. Liz was yes. so nice and so sweet, and it was such a pleasure that I got to meet her a couple of years ago. Um, I say a couple of years ago, like it would have been twelve years ago. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, like because like you you met her before I I it was introduced to you I think. 
I don't think so. It would have been around that time. Because it was before the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. It was before season three of uh, Sarah Jane Adventures started. Right. Um, but I'm just looking at that she passed away in 2011. And it's currently 2022. Yeah. That's scary. We're getting old, Paddy. <laughs> no, we're not. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're probably, we've probably not on about trivia and yeah. random stories from our past <laughs> long enough. So... <laughs> Cool. Let's take a little bit of a break and then we'll come back with the character discussion. <laughs> doodly doo, doodly doo, doodly doo. <laughs> so, as always, next stop after the trivia spot is the character discussion. So, we have the Doctor, we mm-hmm. have the companions of Sarah Jane and Hal. Mm-hmm. Now, I initially put Rubish down as a prominent character. Do you think he should stay there, or should he be bumped up to companion status? I think Rubish should stay as prominent character, and I'll explain more when we get to him. Cool. Perfect. And then, obviously, for the villains, there's Lynx and Irongron. So, uh, I haven't watched this in a while, and I know that you haven't watched it. Well, actually, no, you probably... When was the last time you watched this? Oh, I'll be honest, it's very hard for me to go back and watch the Sarah Jane stories, because even though I love them, mm-hmm. knowing Liz passed away, it's actually, it's actually very difficult for me to, to watch them. Um, So, I think the last time I watched Time Warrior would have been... To put it in context, mm. it would have been... After I came back from skiing the last time, and before a certain someone, no, it would have been after a certain someone left my life. I'll put that Yes, gotcha. Cool. Perfect. I went through a bit of a thing where I went through all my Sarah yeah. Jane stories because I needed some happiness in my life. Um, so yeah, that would have been coming up on four years ago. Right. Cool. So you're uh, <laughs> now it's both fresh in our memories. So mm. this is perfect. So, do you want to start off, or will I start off? I'm sure I'll start off. Because um, I messaged you, you messaged me yesterday, so I was like, hey, you watch it tonight? I said, yeah. And I said, I'm going to have to try, because like, you gave me the list of characters, and I was already writing notes in my brain for those <laughs> characters, <laughs> without having rewatched it yet. Um, and I was trying to remember, before I watched it, what my thoughts were of the Doctor in this one. And the only thing I remembered specifically was the Doctor sort of making co- the comment about, we need someone to make the coffee. Mm-hmm. And given sort of recent, you know, <laughs> realizations that several of the Doctors in certain stories were presented as quite sexist, mm-hmm. I was like, oh no, please. Like, I couldn't remember much else of his, like, attitude for the story. And I was like, oh, please hope mm-hmm. that was one of the one line. And it was. Um... I am going yeah. to take his comment on Sarah being the coffee lady or the tea lady purely as him having a little bit of fun with her because he just sits back and laughs and sort of smiles. Do you know, I think, yeah, I think he was clearly intrigued by her. Do you know, like this woman who came into this research center pretending to be her aunt and was kind of like, a he can tell that he can wind her up a bit, but also he's like, I'm curious to see how this is going to go. Yeah, <laughs> like. When Rubish is like, oh, should we tell the Brigadier? And he's like, no, <laughs> why bother? <laughs> I've actually just realized that this is going to be very interesting because whereas you would have watched this previously with like only watching Liz's stories and mm. then the scattering of Joe, you've now seen the character arc of, you know, his three seasons with Joe and now coming into Time Warrior. Yeah, because so, I would have... Yeah, 
I would have watched him with Liz Shaw, skipped Joe, yeah, and then watched yeah. him with Sarah Jane. So it's very weird for me watching it the whole way through. Um, yeah, I think I said I loved his interaction with Sarah. I love that he didn't offer her up. Do you know? And the fact that when Rubish is like, "Oh, we should tell the brigadier," he's like, "About what? What are you on about?" And he's so clearly like, "What the fuck is up with her?" Like, yeah. I was gonna. He just wants to sit back and like, he kind of. He just wants to watch the world burn a little bit around the brigadier and see like what is this young woman going to do? Um, during his time in the past, I love how he plays each moment as it comes. He never conde- condemns Sarah for thinking that he was the bad guy. Yeah, do you know? Like he never is like, "What do you mean by that?" Like, of course, like yeah, he says, "No, like of course I'm not," but like he never sort of to put it in context, right? <laughs> I can't help but compare this to Terror of the Autons. Right, mm-hmm. we have an introductory companion story. The doctor is still there; it's the same doctor. It's the first story of the season, and we talked about in our rambling last week how terror was really a bad introduction for a character, and the way the doctor yeah. treated her was part mm-hmm. of that. Here, yeah. yeah, he has fun with her, but you know, and she calls him out for being demeaning, but it's purely meant in jest. Like he never gets angry with her. Like, he he could very easily have yelled at her for being like, what the hell are you doing around telling people I'm this evil person and I'm not but he doesn't and I think it just comes across a whole lot better in this story than it did in Terror of the Autons. Also mm-hmm. I love his use of quote unquote magic is <laughs> just stink bombs <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stink bombs and flash grenades that's it. Um, but also again his compassion coming through in that you know, he was perfectly willing to help Lynx. Look, you know, send them all home. I'll fix your fucking ship. That, that's no mm-hmm. problem. Like, he had nothing against Lynx being a guy who was stranded on Earth. That wasn't the problem. He's just mm-hmm. like, don't hurt people, don't hurt people, and don't dilute the timeline. Like, that, that, that's it. Or don't pollute the timeline, rather. That's all he wanted. And he would have happily helped him. He offered it to him twice. He would have happily helped him do that. But we also see the compassion that, like, he doesn't want... Iron Gron and his men being blown up, even mm-hmm. though they're bad guys, and that's yeah. that's the Doctor that I like. Do you know that? That's the Doctor that we saw in, um, the Silurians. Do you know? Yes. Um. So I really like that it's coming back up to the fore here because you know, there was some stories over the last like three seasons with Joe and like the, this obviously isn't just slant on Joe or anything, but there's some story in those seasons where like his moral compass was a little funny. Yes, no, I agree. Uh, sea Devils, looking at you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, we get to very clearly see where that moral compass is pointing, which is good. Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, so like one of my initial thoughts was, like, I would be very curious to know how much time has passed since, you know, Joe left. Because, you know, he he doesn't mention her, like, or he doesn't, like, you know, pass a comment about, you know, oh, Joe would have loved this or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? So I was just curious about that. Um, John's performance here, okay. I have a feeling that there's maybe like maybe like some real life um feelings done into it, because his interactions with Sarah when you know she they first meet, it does feel like a small bit like they're they're doing lines for an audition. Mm. You know, like he seems like you because know, he's almost like he's appraising her. Well, he is appraising her, but it's almost like it's. I can imagine that this is sort of what it was like when they rehearsed that scene together, you yeah. know? Um, but it, it just actually adds to the performance. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think, like, 
if if that was the case where he did have real life feelings about you know working with Liz and his time on the show, I think it actually adds to the whole character point of view because it's like he's just after losing someone that he cared an awful lot about. Now that he has like full access to the TARDIS, you know, maybe it's time for him to start going wandering again, you know? Maybe not be so beholden to unit. Um now that's probably just me using my knowledge of like what's about to happen, you know, like in his tenure on the show, maybe it's uh, tilting or tinting my view a small bit, but I I, I liked it. I really enjoyed it. One thing on you, that yeah? as well is that in terms of like the real life bleeding in, there's mm-hmm. a three month gap between this story and the next story in reality, mm-hmm. in production. I mean, yeah. I think this is one of those cases where this story was actually filmed at the end of last season. Right. So Katie may have actually only just left. Gotcha. And then they're into this new story. But like, aside from that, we get our usual like shenanigans from him. Like, you know, it's nice seeing him build his little uh, time detection uh, device. I love this. Um, kind of reminds you of tenants, like it goes ding when they're stuffed. Yeah, exactly. I I love that. Um, it was actually because I recently watched it. Um, you know when he has a holographic projector and it shows legs and the guard shoots mm. and he just gives the guard this look of like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Age of Ultron where um, like the Avengers are fighting the Ultron bots and like all the Sokovian cops are shooting and one of them tells like, stop. But like one guy, he's clearly nervous, shoots and Quicksilver gets hit by the bullet while he's running really fast and he just looks back to him and kind of go like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, like, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed his interaction with Rubish. I actually, you know, I thought he was great here. He was his usual charming self. We got Science Doctor. We got John being in his best James Bond. And one thing that I really enjoyed was that we rarely see him get physically bested mm. when he does his Venusian Aikido. He gets thrown around the place here like he's clearly not a match for links and i thought it was re it really set up that if one santaran is this strong yeah. essentially what must an entire army of them be like yeah and that's something that like jumping timelines massively the sarah mm-hmm. adventures has a santaran story in it yeah it has two one of them's a bit yeah one of them's really good yeah. um mm-hmm. Where, you know, she sees a Santaran escape pod mm-hmm. and loses her freaking mind. It's yeah. as if she saw a Dalek. Um, and here you can clearly see why. Do you know, one Santaran is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Oh, hugely. Especially at that time period, you know? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I just think it's a really good performance all around here. Like, we get the usual witty one-liners, the charm, the great interaction with the villains, and I think a really good rapport with um, Sarah Jane. Yeah. I do love his um, daring your man on the flying trapeze line. I don't know why there's something about that line. It just sticks <laughs> in my head. <laughs> I know it's meant to be more like Earl Flynn-esque, you know, swashbuckling, but it just comes across like Robin Hood men in tights. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes, and away. <laughs> oh. Right rope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, sorry, now I have the Daffy Duck Looney Tunes of him as Robin Hood, and it's just, oh, no. 
I'm going to be giggling internally now for hours. So um, we have the f- companions of the piece. There are Sarah Jane and Hal. Mm. Shall we do Sarah Jane first or don't do Hal first? Um, no, let's do Sarah Jane first. I've been waiting for this for so long. <laughs> because I tried to be like, obviously we watch an episode, a story a week. Um, and sometimes yeah. that can be kind of hard to keep up with. I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, some of these stories are very long. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, with the exception of I watch New Who, so I obviously watched Jodie Whittaker's run. Mm-hmm. I haven't really watched, I haven't re-watched any stories I've watched before. Yeah. So for this whole time we were doing this podcast, I was like, I want to talk about Sarah Jane. I want to watch Sarah Jane. And like, I haven't watched Sarah Jane Adventures. I haven't watched anything with her in it. Because I wanted to wait until we could actually discuss it like properly on the pod as opposed to me. Like, like if I had watched Time Warrior a couple of months ago and then we were watching it again for this, the effect wouldn't have been the same. So I'm just so glad that we actually get to watch it, to watch it and talk about her character. Um, I cheated a small bit and I started listening to her Big Finish uh, audio series again because it's so fucking good. But I cheated in a roundabout way that doesn't really count because I listened to the latest Big Finish Sarah Jane stuff. Hmm. But it's not Liz, it's Sadie. It's Sadie, so yeah. That doesn't count in my mind. Um, however, this, I think, is a fantastic introduction to the character of Sarah Jane. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about it is it starts with her doing her job. Yes. Sarah Jane Smith is a journalist. Right. There are times in the show when they will forget this fact. But that is her job. Her job is to investigate things. She also she's an investigative journalist as well. She's not just like mm. um, you know, the weather column person. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She actually goes out and does investigations and stuff. So I love how it starts with her doing her job. I also love how she didn't get all up in arms and like panicky when the doctor was like yeah, well, you must have written that when you were five. Mm. If that's really you. She just kind of looked at him all doe-eyed and was like, you're not going to tell on me, are you? Like, This is clearly how she gets all her scoops, just wrapping yeah. men around her, her little finger and kind of like yeah. play all doe-eyed. But it's so funny later on. I don't know, like one of my favorite bits of the story, it happens in episode one when Rubish is sort of telling the doctor, like, oh, you know, she's not Lavinia Smith, you know, and he's like, oh, because Lavinia Smith's in America. He's like, yeah, I do should we tell the brigadier? And he's like, you know, about what? About her, he's like, you know, she could be a spy. And then Sarah just walks in and sort of leans against the wall. It's like, hi. Because <laughs> she knows he's talking about her. And he know- yeah. she knows he's talking shit about her. And she's just like, I fucking dare you. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just find it so funny. Just the way she acts in those scenes. Um, her time in the past is fantastic. I think this is probably one of the funniest but also best written trips to the past by someone who didn't know they were traveling to the past <laughs> that we have had because she spends like the first like 10 minutes trying to rationalize it out. You know, mm, this is yeah. a, you know, village pageant. It's a, it's a rag day event, which I just found hilariously funny. Uh, <laughs> rag meaning raise and give, which is a fundraising yeah. thing carried out by universities. You know, she's like, oh, it's one of those tourist attractions. But she spends her whole time trying to rationalize it out. But then once she realizes that it's actually true, she just mm. goes with the flow. <laughs> yeah. To the point where she's leading a raid <laughs> to get the doctor out of the castle. <laughs> it's like, I fucking love it. So good. 
no need for rescues here. She's the one doing the rescuing of the doctor twice. Mm-hmm. If you if you consider her first kidnapping of him a rescue, <laughs> and her outfits like her outfits are amazing. Um, I do love that like blazer suit combo. Um, mm. her performance is fantastic, and her little jumps to see over the parapets because Liz is actually quite short. Um, mm. so her little jumps to see over the parapets were very, was very cute. It's very Gimli at Helm's Deep. Yeah, but like adorable and not like slightly embarrassing. <laughs> um Uh, overall though i think for an introductory story this like this is the type of introduction that joe should have gotten you know because this is the type of introduction that liz shaw got yeah do you know um i think katie was kind of short shrifted in that respect um in terms of the three you know the 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 john pertwee like dr angels um (laughs) of the show uh joe grant and sarah jane i think liz was kind of shafted in that um in comparison to the other two I just had a really mean thought. You know, there's that meme of like the three heads of Ghidorah, like where like there's one looking fierce, one looking side eyed, and then there's just one looking derpy. Yeah, yeah. I just like that came into my head there, and it's like only from Terror of the Autons. If you had started off with Mind of Evil, much better taste left in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. How about you? What's your read on Sarah Jane and her first story out of the gate? So the first thing that came into my head, right, was a line from a movie that I absolutely love, but seems to get an awful fucking stick, is uh, the 1980s version of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Mm. But Skeletor just says, this wonderful line goes, everything comes to he who waits, and I have waited so very long for this moment. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like, it's finally happened. Much like you, I really wanted to go ahead and watch some of my, you know, favorite stories, but I was like, nope, must behave. Um, I love how you ex- went with He-Man I went with Hannibal Lecter similar concept <laughs> similar <laughs> all good things uh, to those who wait, those can wait. yeah <laughs> but uh, both villains what does that say about us <laughs> um, but I quite an intro for a companion um, what I, one thing that I love right is that it turns the formula completely on its head by having Sarah think that the doctor is the culprit oh yeah it, it kind of harkens back to Ian and Barbara, where they thought like that maybe you know he had kidnapped Susan, like the think that like, the, the doctor is the villain of the piece. I think was fantastic. Um, I love how she gets stuck into things, like actively taking part in the commando raid, as you said, um, helping out with the defense of the castle with the little jump ups, you know, <laughs> that that thing. Um, but yeah, I know, like just like an investigative journalist who is equal parts determined but also coy and, you know, very smartish, you know, I think she's a good judge of character. So I think that's how she knows to wrap her hands around someone or wrap her, wrap people <laughs> around her fingers. Yeah. Um, just like strangle them. One thing actually you mentioned, like that she kind of turns the sort of, um, the stereotypical, uh, you know, Doctor Who format on its head. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one who stows away in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like she creeps in and gets caught up in the yeah. story. It's not like that he kidnaps her yeah. or that he invites her along. <laughs> um, yeah. It is the one thing she has in common with Stephen, um, which is that they both stowed away. <laughs> yeah. Also, no, Ben and Polly, he didn't kidnap them. They snuck on board. But they didn't snuck, sneak on board in the same way. Like He didn't know she was there. <laughs> He didn't know Stephen was there either. Like, I mean, stowaway in that con- in that context. Those two ran in the door, and he just fucking kept going. Yeah, but he—that's the thing. Like, so 
but yeah, no, like you know, she snuck on board, and I, I, I actually enjoyed because again, kind of turning the whole thing on say like it's bigger on the inside, but it's like no, it's it's a police box on the outside, so it's like it's it's in a way it's almost like um spider-man homecoming look we all know the story about uncle ben we're just going to allude to it we're not going to fucking hash it out again yeah um, and then we get to spider-man no way home and we all cry yeah exactly um but no like again in a way she seems to remind me of barbara because mm. the abilities are already there they just it just needs the situation to unlock them you know like clearly she's someone that didn't have to have a prior experience with the doctor to be able to be comfortable enough to lead the commando raid mm. or to come up with the idea of it. No, it's like she clearly that was something that she had in her own experiences encountered and then brought it into this to apply it to this otherworldly scenario. Mm. Whereas, like, say, other companions, like again, like maybe Polly, Polly would have had to have the experiences to gain that confidence in which to do that. Yeah, I think another like big comparison, and again, this isn't mentioned in a negative light. It's just to show like the change in how the characters are written. Sarah Jane again, a big feminist character. This will come up a lot this season. Mm -hmm. Comes up less so after this season, but comes up a lot this season. You know, you know, she goes off the big thing like I'm not going to be the one making coffee for you. Do you know? Like I've got a job to do. You fucker. (laughs) Like yeah, she comes into this with a career, and so did Joe, but. Joe's career wasn't respected mm-hmm. and she was treated like a child at least in this story yeah the doctor sort of plays around with her a bit in terms of like has you know a bit of banter with her and stuff but you know he doesn't treat her like a child either no he he, do, he doesn't he he treats her no for the moment mm. but he treats her like uh, a young lady yeah. essentially yeah or young young woman She's kind of accepted for what she is mm-hmm. and who she is. Whereas, again, in those first few stories, Joe sadly wasn't, which I think is, again, just a massive disservice to the character and to Casey as well, who deserved better. Yeah. Now we could spend an entire fucking hour just talking about Sarah Jane. So, how about we move on to. The and next we have episode. done many times. Yes. In the past. Many, many times. <laughs> many, many fine cadets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, next on the list is Hal. I'm Hal. Last name, The Archer. How many people, how many, like, um, you know, uh, soldiers are in uh, Sir Edward's uh, retinue named Hal? That Lady Eleanor has to specify, no, not Hal the Swordsman, Hal the Archer. <laughs> like, because in my head, that's his name. <laughs> His name is Hal the Archer. It's like, his name is Hal. <laughs> what the hell? Anyway, um, what did you think of Hal? Um, I I really enjoyed Hal. Like, I love the fact that he never thinks of betraying Sir Edward and Lady Eleanor. Like, you know, because that's the whole thing that's said the whole time is that because of the Crusades and a lot of the men have been levied away from the surrounding castles, Iron Gron has free reign mm-hmm. when if without the crusades he wouldn't he would just be like a leader of a band of thieves on the road mm-hmm. but rather than kind of going over to iron grand side or selling out edward and elnor he stays loyal to them which is great i i will contest one thing on that okay yeah because 
my only big issue with Hal is he gave up Lady Eleanor super fucking quickly. Like the dude before him, the um, steward or whoever who was the, the messenger, who was, yeah, the messages. He had to be tortured and then hypnotized before he mm. gave up any information. Hal just threw Lady Eleanor under the bus or under the cart, as it were, at the first fucking question. He didn't say that he came that Sir Edward sent him. He said, I was sent by Lady Eleanor. Like he threw her under the bus straight away. He never once tried to pretend that it was just him on his own. Whereas if you compare him to the um I said the steward or the messenger or whatever position that guy held, he had to be tortured and hypnotized before he gave up anything. So while he is incredibly loyal to them. He did also throw her under the bus, or cart. So I've I've actually I know not disputing that, but I just I, I want to get your opinion on something, okay? Hmm. So with the messenger, he they knew that he worked for Edward, hmm. but he, what he refused to give up was the contents of the letter that was talking about the preparations of you know the local lords and getting their men together. Whereas Hal gave up the name of his employer. No, it's still it's still admitting who he's working for, but do you think Hal admitting who he's working for is slightly less kind of like dangerous than giving up information of a of an alliance? No, because they knew who the steward was. I'm gonna say steward. Yeah. So I can't his position. So I'm gonna say he was the steward. They knew mm-hmm. who he was. Mm-hmm. There was no denying that. Yeah. Like they knew that he you know, reported to Sir Edward. There was no denying that. Mm-hmm. He just didn't give up the fact that Sir Edward was planning on, you know, getting a group of people together to take down Ironron. Mm-hmm. They didn't know who Hal worked for. They didn't know who he was. They just said, did Sir Edward send you? And he said, mm-hmm. no, Lady Eleanor did. Like, well, don't, don't fucking tell them that. Like, he has basically said that, A, Sir Edward doesn't have control of his own castle because his wife has given the orders. And B, even though they can't get a band of people together, they're still coming to get you. Like, Mm. he gave up the fact that it was a deliberate assault, whereas the other guy had to be hypnotized in order to do the same. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that. All right. I just wanted to know, like, would one piece of, would one betrayal of information outweigh the other betrayal of information? No, because one was also deliberate and the other one was forced by a hypnotism. Um, but it's not taking away from his loyalty overall yeah it's just i think on that one particular thing i do have to call that out because that was a major issue i had with him no i I, yeah no i agree with that i agree with that um other stuff that i like was um no he did attest to sarah's bravery and courage in the escape from the castle which i Mm. loved i thought that was cool but then like when they have the raid he does bring up the the idea of her like gender, like you know, it's like you know, oh, like um, I'm not sure if this is women's work, you know. Mm. I was like, okay, but you know, is that just because you want her to stay safe, or do you legitimately think that women have no place in the fight because you're just after fucking attesting to her bravery earlier on? So I'm going to lean with more towards the thing of trying to keep her safe. Yeah, I mean, I think again, the difference between Hal and the Doctor in that context is Hal mm. is actually from the Middle Ages. Yeah. And fighting in wars isn't women's work <laughs> in the <laughs> Middle Ages. So I think for Hal, it was, you know, he stood up for Sarah. You know, mm-hmm. if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have gotten out. 
mm-hmm. 110%. That doesn't mean like she was also taken captive in mm-hmm. the same way he was and they kind of escaped yeah. together. Yeah. That's very different than her participating in a raid deliberately. Like one is escape, the other is attack. Escape good, attack women shouldn't be attacking. Yeah. In this day and age we'd say fuck you. In the Middle Ages, I get where he's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the one last thing that I did like about him was that I like the fact that he's the savior at the end of the day. Mm. I, I like the one that he like because again, I think it just adds like we're told that Santarans are only weak to the the a strike to the prohibit vent. And like to put it into context, like this is the thermal exhaust port on the fucking Death Star. Yeah. Like it's a, like it's a scaled down narrow weakness at the base of the neck. And Lynx even says it means we constantly have to face our enemies. It's very Spartan mm. in the the military mentality. And like we know that Hal is a very skilled archer. So like I think having him be the one to get links and like the Achilles heel thing, I I, I think again it just adds to the threat of the Sun Tyrants for me. I think it adds to the threat of the Sun Tyrants. I think also as the threat is <laughs> I do wonder if it was by accident. Mm-hmm. Because no one told Hal that they're only weak in the propaganda. He told Rubish. He didn't tell Hal that he's only weak at that point. Or if we don't see him do it on screen, he may have done it off screen. Um so you imagine like was Al was Hal aiming for his head and missed? Or did he just see a hole in the back of this guy's suit and go, I'll aim for that? I'm going to possibly say told off screen. <laughs> told off screen makes more sense. Yeah. Um, otherwise yeah. it's just like a fluke. <laughs> to the novelization. <laughs> That's our fucking answer to get out of anything. Yeah, the novelizations that were often written years after the actual yeah, yeah, show. Yeah. <laughs> Let's work out the kinks because some Irish prick is going to raise these questions. Did you just call me a prick? No, I, uh, no, no. I meant me. But granted, yes, you're the one that raised the question. (laughs) But yeah, I think, I think Hal's a great character. I can understand why Barry would have considered him for a companion role. I think it would have been Hmm. very interesting in a very, um, Zoe and Jamie kind of way to have yeah. the modern companion and the medieval archer mm-hmm. mainly because unlike Zoe and Jamie where Jamie kind of had this like oh well she's not that much smarter than me type of thing going on yeah. um, Han and Sarah get along really well uh, they do. They work quite well together they seem to respect each other you know they're like other than you know I don't think this is woman's work and her saying well I know who knows who he fucking looks like moron like, mm. <laughs> you know, that, that's the only bit. It's not an argument, it's just a comment yeah. and a response and getting on with it. So, I can understand where they're going to keep him, what they consider keeping him on as a companion role. Like I said, my only call it was how easily he gave up Lady Eleanor. Mm. And yeah. I don't know, I think maybe they didn't want to do a second hypnotized scene in the same, like, that would have been the third hypnotized moment because yeah. he would have had. The steward and Sarah Jane and Hal, and there's probably a bit much. Um, mm. It just seemed like he was just being a dick to Lady Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck like, that I, bitch! I'm... I was like, I will never give up my lord. His wife, though, she's a pain in the hole. Yeah, it was her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have Rubish. Yeah. So I mentioned how I didn't want my how I, I had initial thoughts going in. Mm. 
and I sort of started half writing the character <laughs> descriptions last night before I ever watched it. Right. Um, one of the ones that changed was Rubish. Um, and I said that I saw him as a prominent character, and I'll explain why. So, through all my previous watchings of the story, I always thought Rubish was kind of rubbish. Um, <laughs> yes, I have to make the pun. Um, because for a lot of the story, he's of no help, and he's kind of unintentionally getting in the way. Hmm. Um, never deliberately and never maliciously. He kind of gets in the way. Um, like, when the Doctor first sees him in Aragorn's uh, castle, he's like, you know, leave, but I don't want to leave. Think about all I could learn here. It's like, dude, you are captive in the Middle Ages and your friends are being used as slaves. Get your fucking shit together, man. Like, time to go. Time to get out of Dodge. And the fact that he just potters around. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah, I tried to wake them up, but they're not waking up. And I was like, I, I wasn't a big fan of it. Um, hmm. On subsequent viewing, though, I really have come to appreciate him in a different way. Um, he is the unassuming background character mm. that is constantly paying attention to everything. Yeah. Even if he can't see it properly, <laughs> he's still paying attention. And when they're in... And this is, this is the thing that sort of changed my mind on him. Mm-hmm. When there is a plan, an yeah. actual plan, he's more than happy to help out. You know, it's like yeah. the first meeting, the doctor didn't have a plan. Um, he just had a we have to escape. And he's like, hmm. uh, I can't see for shit, so no. Um, but when the doctor actually has a plan, he's like, Oh yeah, you know, I'll do the polka time, I'll do this, I'll do that. You know, he's happy to help out in that respect, which I like. Hmm. Also, he clattered <laughs> links in the probing event. <laughs> what is not to love about that? Yeah. Like no, there's an awful lot to love about it. Like I, I enjoyed Rubish because no, very similar to yourself. Like I had, you know, I was like coming into it. I was like, oh, he's gonna be a fucking pain in the hole, and like I didn't think he he's kind of a good foil to the Doctor. You mm-hmm. know, like this sort of like absent-minded professor type thing, like where he just starts randomly drawing equations on the TARDIS and um, just not you know badgering him about you know what should we do about Sarah. On the subject of um, being trapped in the castle, right? Mm. Now, it's clear like his scientific curiosity uh, you know, is well over his own public safety. Uh, and I hope that he never ends up in the scenario again because like, that's not good. On the subject of the, of the guys being hypnotized, now we know that he's very, very short-sighted. Mm. And he, he fashions himself a monocle, which I think is just fucking incredible. A monocle on a stick. <laughs> Do you think that his blindness probably prevented him from seeing just how bad, like, how bad his friends were? I like, don't think gets... so, because like, he's well aware of the fact that they're not being fed properly. He's well aware of the hmm. fact that they don't sleep. Hmm. Like, he's aware of, yeah, he can't maybe see physically what they look like. Hmm or at least not very well, but like he is well aware of what's happening. And like mm. he has the for- like, he has the freedom to eat the food that's provided and to sleep when he wants or rest when he wants or whatever. And mm. he can see that the rest of them aren't. So yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I put him in a prominent character and not a companion, yeah. because he has this sort of, it's completely unintentional. Do you know? Mm. Again, it's the absent-minded professor thing of, it comes across like he doesn't care. 
Which yeah. I don't think is true. I think it's just not fully registering in his brain. I, I think the scientific curiosity probably rules the mind a small bit more than the rational mind. Mm. And we've talked about characters like that before, and we're going to be talking about characters in the future in a very similar vein. Um, but yeah, I would definitely place him as a prominent character. Um, well, because he, while he does help out, his initial reluctance to do anything really did like, uh, yeah, does it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have made him a villain or anything of the sort. No, but no, it, Jesus, it, it, no, it no, firmly no. entrenched him in no, prominent character. No. Like, like he's like he's definitely not Lesterson from like Power of the Daleks. No. Absolutely not. Like no. he's, but again, like it's I've traveled through time. There's alien technology at work here. This is everything I suppose a scientist might dream of. And again, it's the curiosity getting the better of him. But when he sees that Lynx is, like when he actually sees that fucking Lynx is a very bad dude, <laughs> then it's like, okay, I'll clatter this fucker on the back of the neck with a stick. Yeah. And then we have the villains. We have Arngron and Lynx. Okay, I'm just going to say it now, right? Mm-hmm. In some weird, like, parallel Earth, we need to have Arngron and Lynx as, like, this, like, buddy comedy the odd couple type things like he's a medieval warrior he's from outer space and together (laughs) they're trying to solve crime or whatever the fuck the case would be like together they are so fucking funny it is brilliant and i need them on like a buddy comedy sitcom no, do what we actually need? We need a version of the wacky races where they continually try to take over Sir Edward's castle. <laughs> <laughs> Just to do with him, like, fucking... Iron Grand can be Dick Dastardly, Lynx can be fucking... I don't know, I think he's more like Clunk. <laughs> and, and Blood X could be fucking Motley or something like that. Um, <sighs> oh, no, but we'll talk about them both individually in a second, but I, yeah. their dynamic together... Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's so interesting so, to watch. It's so good. Like I I I really, really enjoy Iron Grand. Like mm. David David Dacre does like oh he does a fantastic job. Like he has all the, like the language and like you know, like calls everyone's like you know, you know, dogs and curs and <laughs> like, you know, all these like medieval curses that he would levy against links and like oh you know by my you know by my beard you know this fellow gives me sport and all this type of shit it's like like he's the loudest smartest bully in the pack that's essentially what he is and like he like when he's like there's the whole thing of all the guys are shooting at the doctor and the doctor's just dodging one at a time uh, he's laughing and he's like, yeah, I was like, fuck it, like I might keep this guy on, you know, as a bit of a laugh, you know. That's what it is. It's like, he's he we have he in a way he kind of reminds me of Odysseus from the Mythmakers mm. in like this very brutish character that seems to have like some bit of a fucking twisted sense of humor, you know. But what I love about him is that while he does seem to be very like <sighs> He's an aggressive person. He's an aggressive personality and it's just all this type of stuff. He's smart enough to know when to tighten the reins on the guys. Because yeah. when Blood, like when he continually makes threats about killing Lynx and Blood X is like, yo, like I'm kind of confused as to why you didn't do it in the first place. And you just see his eyes dart around. And it's like, well, like, you know, it's like, well, I'm smarter than you, uh, Blood X. Like, I had to keep him alive to get everything that I need. Yes, yes, that'll do. <laughs> and Blood X is like, oh, yeah, there's a reason you're the brains of this outfit. Um... But then, like, it's, and you, you have this thing, like, where 
you'd be constantly wondering, would Blood Axe betray him? Mm. But at the end, it's like he keeps, as much as he goes out to the guys, like he keeps them like, you know, entertained with food and uh, wine and this whole thing of like, you know, all the loot we'll have and all this type of stuff. So he knows when to use the carrot as well as the stick. Yeah. I think, I think Iron he, Grant, he's a very good leader in a way. <laughs> he, he is. He, he is. Of, of that type of band of characters, do you know? He's a, yeah. he's a very good leader. Um, like, I, I was putting my notes, is it wrong that I actually like him? <laughs> you know? He's weirdly charming in his own way. Yeah. Like, not like in a sexy charming, but in a sort of like, could charm you into giving you whatever he wanted, but you fucking realizing it kind of way. Um, but he's also a total barbarian. There's something of a Cal Drogo about him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing that I love about him, and you kind of hinted at it there, is that like while he does sometimes try and cover his own ass with his men, so like, oh, well, mm. you know, of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. He may not be able to read, but he is smart. Mm. And we Definitely. can see this. Like, his men are terrified of Lynx. They give into their superstitions straight away. What does he see? He sees opportunity and he embraces it 110%. He doesn't bat an eye. Like Link starts asking for like high capacitor computers and whatever. And he's like, as opposed to saying like, you know, what is this magic? He's just like, we don't have those. Yeah. He doesn't, it's can see the fact he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He's like, no, we don't have them. But I can give you, I can give you a forger. Mm-hmm. I can give you a weaponsmith. Um, you know, I can give you those things. No problem. Um, but like he sees an opportunity with links of this guy needs help. I can help him and he can help me. Great. Fantastic. And in fairness, for the most part, he leaves links alone to mm. do his stuff. Yeah. He demands his presence every now and again and demands results on what was promised to him. Because like we can see in some of the scenes that like links has hypnotic control over some of iron Grand's men, mm-hmm. the guys making the weapons. Like yeah. They move the same way the scientists move. Mm-hmm. So, like, Iron Grod has given up a lot to help him. And so he obviously demands, you know, back what was promised. But he, their relationship is so interesting to watch. Like, it, it's a friendship. It's an attempt at a master-servant dynamic from Iron Grod's perspective. Yeah. But there's also this underlying current of mistrust that comes across in the fact that he calls him Toad Face, that he calls him like all those kind of yeah. names. And he's constantly threatening him because he's like, I'll keep him around so long as it serves me. As soon as I, it doesn't, though. Yeah, because the, the word friendship there, I, I, that's kind of a very loose thing because, no, I agree like that from Iron Grant's perspective, it's master and service, servant. From Lynx's perspective, it's like. It's master it's like and an, dog. It's, yeah, it's like, a, it's like an ant colony almost. Like, you know, I'll introduce something here and just see exactly what they do. You know, but I think like, with, like when Link's like you, know, like I didn't, you know, I never thought when I first saw you that I'd come to love you like a brother. Yeah, but, like, that seems weird to say to someone who you also threaten to kill every five minutes. Yeah, but if you think in the context of Iron Grand's band of mm. misfit toys, you know, like of blood yeah. axe or whatever, you know, there's a brotherhood there among them. But he'd caught any one of them if they tried to supersede him or if they tried to undermine him. And he treats Lynx in the same way. So when he says that he sees Lynx as a brother and that they have this great friendship, it's the same type of friendship he has a blood axe. You're my yeah. friend, as long as you're fucking useful to me. Try and get above your station, though. And I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Because how did you get the name Blood Axe? Well, I killed people with my axe and it's all bloody. How do you get the name Short Spear? Please don't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, no, like, Iron Gron really helps make this a good story. Like, he really just... does. And also, like, the, the guy who plays him is fantastic. He really, really is. But, like, oh, he's amazing. I would have loved to have seen this story of Bright and Blessed because, like, <laughs> <laughs> Iron Rod is a character that was written oh, for Brian really, Blessed's voice. He really is. He really, really is. That would have been amazing. <laughs> uh, so how about the other half of your buddy cop? <laughs> <laughs> so the Suntarans are one of, if not my favourite classic monster. Um, I love them in this story. I love them in the Suntaran experiment. I love them in other stories that we see them in. Um, and I was particularly particularly excited, and you may remember like when the trailers dropped for Doctor Who yeah. Flux, and when that second episode of the Flux series came out, mm. I loved the Suntarans. And it all started with links. It, it all did. started with this one Suntaran. Because mm. like you said, you can see how deadly they are when they're on their own. But mm. also, what Kevin put into his performance was amazing. Oh, like, absolutely, like much in the same way as um, the guy that played Islier mm. in Curse of Paladon, who had previously played like other characters. Mm. A recurring villain, I think, is helped by the performance of the actor that gives it. Yeah. So, like, while the, some of them may look sort of naff by today's standards, mm. the the performance given you forget about all the fucking weird prosthetics and makeup and bin liners that are on them you're just drawn to the actor because they make it look like a credible fucking threat i think and that, kevin does that here yeah i think that's the difference that i find with like the cybermen and the Suntarans. so or the mm. cybermen and the daleks rather it's like here like lynx is a character islier yeah. was a character i'm not a yeah. big fan of the ice warriors but i was a fan of lynx or as yeah. a fan of Islier, rather. I think the mm. only reason why the Ice Warriors aren't higher in my list of, like, um, you know, villains mm-hmm. is because Islier wasn't my introduction to them. No. If Islier had been my introduction in the same way that Lynx is my introduction here, I think they would have been higher up. Similarly with the Silurians. Yes. Um, I think I had seen the new who silurians before i watched the silurian story let me think back to my memory of stuff very possibly or it would have been around the same time it would have been around the same time i think and i think the new who silurians kind of put me off but if we think back to the silurians i don't remember any of their names which is a problem because then they become the Silurians, like the well, Daleks and the Cybermen. But they didn't have names, as far as I remember. No, none of the Silurians. We gave them monikers. Yeah. But, but like uh, the leader Silurian was fantastic in that yeah. story, do you know? Um, the the so, young one and the scientist. They the young one and the scientist. Yeah, like, but I think with villains like the Daleks and the Cybermen, because of... And this is the irony of the Santarans, who are a clone race. Yeah. With the Daleks and the Cybermen, one is the same as another is the same as another. Mm. For the most part. The casing is a different color. I don't fucking care. I never pay attention to color anyway. Um, so for me, like, Kevin did so much in this performance. And, like, 
it's just he's so good. I just I just love it, and I love I love Links though because Links, like I said, he's like a little boy going, "What will happen if I do this? Mm. This is fucking hilarious." And like the, even the way the doctor describes it as like, you know, Links getting involved in the you know the war like the battle between Iron Ground and Sir Edward's forces, or whatever. Because Links is bored. Yeah. And he, he wants, wants to see and poking, poking the ants to see what they'll do. Yeah. Like, Lynx had no problem providing him. And it was the thing as well, is that, like, you know, from Lynx's perspective, Lynx didn't just hypnotize Iron Gron. And this this is, again, where this buddy comedy thing comes from. He could have mm. very easily hypnotized Iron Gron and Blood Axe and the whole lot of them to get what he wanted. But mm. he didn't. He actually set an agreement with him and delivered on it. Do you know? And yeah, he was yeah. quite happy to fuck off and you know, if you're still in the castle when I leave, well, that's your problem. But he did warn him, do you know? Mm-hmm. In fact, he's like, oh, I'd be quite happy to leave Earth under the control of King Irongrod. You know, Blink's yeah. fucking laughing his ass off, off <laughs> all the way back to the Sun-Iron Fleet. But he's just so interesting. It's such a great dynamic. I just mm. I just think they're brilliant. You actually raise a, kind of a very good point there about the irony that you like the Santarans because they're a clone race where, you know, Cybern and Daleks are very similar to one another. Mm. I think it's by virtue of the fact that we're introduced to one. Yes. Because, like, in, we'll get to it down the line, Christopher Eccleston's uh, first Dalek story has a solitary Dalek in it. Yes. And that is a, that is a great episode. If that was the first Dalek story I'd seen, I probably would react to the Daleks differently. But when you see them as just the Daleks, yeah. It, because I'm I'm the type of person I like the personal touch because I'm more of a fan of the sort of crazed scientist type villains or like the humanoid mm-hmm. type villains just because I really yeah. you know yeah I can sort of imagine what they're thinking a lot better. But yeah, anything else you want to add on links? So much like yourself, and like I had to like really stop my future knowledge of. <laughs> coming into my analysis here i really enjoyed the Santarans on so many levels um they're not always done justice justice unfortunately but as a concept they are fantastic um i loved links because as you said he felt like a character and again credit to kevin Lindsay for the performance and the guys that did the makeup because while obviously not to the same level of budget, to me it felt very similar to the makeup from the Planet of the Apes movies mm. in the sense of how well it seemed to fit. You could you could tell like that the majority of it was just a prosthetic, but like some of it just seemed to fit his eyes and his mouth so well that it all moved together in sequence. It yeah. was it was great. I loved it. Um the aesthetic of Lynx and I, I again it's great because Lynx is an officer, right? That's mm. one and his choice of weapon it looks it's an electronic ba- uh, baton which if you think about it, because he's an officer is probably very similar to like a swagger stick yeah so it would have like so i can imagine like how we see it like regular santaran soldiers have rifles mm. or you know guns or whatever but having like this swagger stick it's like yeah okay he's an officer so he's clearly someone that's fucking a threat um i love like the base of the neck uh, weakness because it just really makes them a very difficult villain to overcome mm. you know like where like there are several ways around the Dalek now that we've seen whereas with Santarans it's like no you, you really gotta fucking get them at the base of the neck like you have to it's almost like a thing from sorry Kelly's Heroes it's like you know, they've only got one weak, weak point and that's their ass you gotta hit a point blank and you gotta hit it from behind um, but and like 
again the concept like so like if one Santaran is like this and like he says the the the, the batches of clones like hatch in the millions mm. and like this is a never-ending war between them and the rutans mm. like so if you think about like you know one way the Santarans are essentially the clone troopers from star wars yeah. and like there's just so much character here it's so good he's links really hooks you in like he's mm. he's not just a dumb brute he's a he's smart he's mm. incredibly intelligent and i love seeing because i think it's i think it is a rarity right outside of the master where the doctor has a threat that is both physical and mental in the same person yeah. and like he easily takes down the doctor um because the one thing that you know it didn't need to go into the summary but Santarans, because of where they come from, they live in a higher density world. Mm. So like they're much more compact, but they have the proportionate strength because of they had to live on like those higher um, higher density worlds. So yeah, just a great like and again the dynamics between everyone here, especially between the Doctor and Iron Grand and Lynx, it's a nice triangle of a threat. Mm. I just remember my two favorite lines of Lynx in the story. Mm-hmm. One isn't a line of links; it's just a scene that comes into my head. Yeah, which is like, you know, I claim this planet and all of its moons for the Grand Emperor. Yeah, but we live here. Do you have a flag? <laughs> yeah, and he plants a fucking flag. It's a really shit flag as well. Yeah, it's like just like. Ah. <laughs> um, but then the second one that I love because it's just his line delivery is so funny, and this is all Kevin. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm. And again, this is the thing because a lot of times with the dialects, it's like the operator is one thing and the voice is something else. Mm. This is all Kevin is. Oh, you have a secondary reproductive cycle. You should get rid of that. <laughs> it's inefficient. <laughs> I just love the delivery, though. It's so funny. I think my favorite Lynx moment, and again, it, it's just, it speaks perfectly to the whole concept of Suntarans, is, um, yeah, no, I, I have it here. I think I have it. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah. So it's like the doctor's like, you know, I'll assist you with the repairs of your ship and you can return, you know, get rid of the weapons and get help me get Iron Grand and his men out of the castle. Like, you know, and he goes, you wish for my answer, Doctor? Then here it is. And he just fucking shoots him. Yeah. I just loved that sequence because it's just, oh, it's so good. It, it's it's brutally ruthless, but it fits a character like Link so well. So we find ourselves at that old familiar stomping grounds, which is the overall section where we give our scores out of five. So Trish, how would you like to score this one? So I had to try really hard, not just to give it a five before ever watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's going to be very difficult now for the next 17 stories. Yeah, it's like Sarah Jane's in it, give it a five. Sarah Jane's in it, give it a five. Um, but being honest though, once I sat down to watch it, mm-hmm. I couldn't think of anything to dock a point for. I, I genuinely couldn't. Like, we have talked before about how there are some stories that go on too long. You know, yes. we, we said it last week with the Green Death. Hmm. Didn't need to be six episodes. This story does not have an ounce of fat on it. It has great pacing. We get, like, if you think about it, we get 
a new companion introduction, a new villain introduction, and a fantastic story on top of that, mm. all in four episodes. Just four. Yeah. You know, and not a single scene is wasted. Everything pushes the plot. Everything develops the characters. You're never looking around going, okay, we're having another drive here, talk to this, drive mm. back there, talk to that. Yeah, there are talking scenes, but they're always interesting. Mm-hmm. It was very well written and the directing was very good and the acting was phenomenal. Like, Lynx and Iron Grand probably take um, top prize in terms of the guest cast. Mm-hmm. But like, Liz Sladen was fantastic right out of the gate um and like for her first story as well do you know like that's it's not an easy thing to do um so i think all of that was fantastic and it was funny do you know i was laughing my ass off at several moments of it which is great like i i genuinely cannot think of a single thing to dock a point for so surprising probably nobody it's getting a five for me. How about you? Cool. So, as anyone that's stuck with us since we did the Crusade, you'll know that I'm a sucker for anything set in the medieval period. And if you introduce a sci-fi element to that, I'm yours completely. Um, so, that added with great all-round performances, a contender for best supporting cast that we've had in the entire, what are we at, 70 stories that we've gone through now. Great new interesting villain, great story based villain as well. Out outside of Iron Gran, sorry, outside of Links in Iron Gran. Uh, great new companion, the Doctor in top form as always. Yeah, like this is an instant classic. It, it's a five out of five for me. I, I I completely agree with you. There's not a single moment wasted in this. It's so much fun to watch the entire time. It's got action. It's got humor. It's got really, really good dialogue and great character interactions. And yeah, so yeah, it's a five out of five. Like I could just like talk about this for hours. Which, as we said before, we have done we many have done times so. over. <laughs> now, I so since I knew that you, since I found out that you gave it a five, I've been going back through the scores. And I think this this is the first time we've had back-to-back season openers that have received a five from us. Mm. And also, I think it's the first time a new companion has been introduced and they have received a five on their very first story. Yeah, I was thinking, I thought Spearhead had gotten a five, but it hadn't. It was very close, though. It it was incredibly close. Uh, But we gave, yeah, no, it was Silurians was a five. Mm. But yeah, I think, you know, Watch time where it's just, just, it's so good. And to be honest, like, you know, we've spoken before about how, like, Bob Holmes's stories um, that he's written in the past, how some of them spearhead fantastic. Mm-hmm. Terror of the Autons. Mm. Yeah. Carnival of Monsters. I kind of liked it. You didn't. There was mixed, mixed opinions on that. Um, yeah, mixed opinions. I have mixed this is the Bob it. Holmes that we know and love. This yeah, story. We right fucking here. slugged. We slugged through the fucking space pirates to get here. 
Yeah, and like this, I think this story more than anything else sort of shows why he became script editor. Hmm. Do you know, like he's like he's the one who's going to take over from Terence when Terence Dix leaves, and this story, you're like, I can see everything in there that would make a great script editor, you know, yeah. including taking a story in a time period that you fucking hate <laughs> and make it great anyway. That's the thing, like you, know, if you, if you can do that with something that you do not like, it's I think it's fantastic, you know, because mm. I I just feel like he, he grasps the concept of what who was meant to be. I think he just grasps what it's meant to be. Yeah. And so we come to the end of our first discussion of season eleven and our first Sarah Jane Smith story. Join us next week when we see if the Doctor is able to get Sarah home. In Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Spoilers. <laughs> I was like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I wonder what the what the villain is going to be next time around. Invasion of the very specific man in the suit. Okay, cool, thanks, Arch. It's the man in the suit, the man in the suit or the bad guy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Until next week, guys. Bye. Bye.